Um, hi, <laughs> hi, boys. What's up? Hey. That was a very natural, very natural break. <laughs> very organic. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's been a very long day. Um, but I'm excited. How's uh, how's work for you, boys? How's the baby, JT? Baby's doing well. Uh, she had to go and get her heel pricked today to do some uh, some blood work, and yeah. she was not pleased okay. with that. I tell you what, <laughs> she got some yeah. she got some lungs for such a tiny creature. Um, <laughs> but all is well. Yeah. She got a little band aid. We you know brought her home. She slept for a couple hours after her traumatic experience. Um, no. but yeah, it's she'll it, never remember. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. It's all good. <laughs> It's probably more traumatizing uh, for you and your wife than yeah. it is uh, mm. for her after you brought her back. It's like a Do you know something? World War Four. Yeah. I had a okay. This, is, this might make me sound like a horrible human being, but I've always <laughs> had this idea, and I wondered if it would work. Imagine like you know when a baby cries. Mm-hmm. What if you were to put like a like there's like it's sort of like a box, and it goes around the kid's head. <laughs> <laughs> and it like reverbs the the the, the, the sound. The crying so so when the baby. so when they cry, they'll hear their own crying, and it will be so loud it will it will annoy them or hurt them even. <laughs> and maybe that will be like negative enforcement reinforcement, so they stop crying as much. Is that, that sounds like one of those Nazi social experiments that they did <laughs> yeah, on twins? <laughs> yeah, they probably did it. Uh, Doctor Mendeley, I mean Doctor Hakim. Yeah, that makes Stop sense. Put her in the head box. Uh, not, uh, but even even if we ignore the ethics, I don't think babies are smart enough no. to realize. You know, the thing echoing right back at them is them screaming. Yeah. they'll probably get even more annoyed and scream even louder because the screaming is louder, and so on and so on. But I heard somewhere that uh, if uh, after birth a baby is completely left alone for like five days, mm. it will stop living, like literally, like it needs attention just as much as it needs food etc etc yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's uh Very... it's uh, the, the 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 instincts that are built into mm. it uh, i guess are the, the closest to animals that we have in in our experience it's yeah. kind of like instinctual existence le- less so uh you know rational no. um we could learn so much about it, but people are like, no, you cannot experiment on babies. Which, okay. yeah. Yeah. Sheesh, Jesus Christ. When you said that, I, so like, if you leave them alone for five days, I'm like, yeah, of course they're going to die. They're going to starve to death. And then you clarify. <laughs> no, no, but you feed them, of course not. You get them. I mean, the fact that we know this probably means somebody has done this, yeah. which I don't even want to go into it, but... Uh, uh, but yeah, speaking of babies, actually, I just finished watching the newest episode of Handmaid's Tale, uh-huh. oh, wow. which for people who don't know is like a world where a clerofascistic government uh, overthrew the U.S. state and then they created their own little thing because the world um, no longer had uh, newborn babies or they had fallen to below 0.1%. And that was kind of the ideological drive of why it was created. And then, you know, I'm not going to spoil or whatever, but I just saw one of the cringiest goddamn fucking scenes of all time where they're talking to, uh, you know, a representative of the American government in oh, exile. Mm. And... Um, and about about a, a new leader of Gilead who you know wants to slowly step by step reform it ah, uh, into into a different system which is uh, you know still still uh, leads to a lot higher percentage of how many babies are born because that's the whole point uh like they will not abandon that they just want to make it more humanitarian blah 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 <laughs> but then the the american the american basically cia agent uh, uh 
looks at them and he says, no, you have to trust uh, your mm. own government, even though it's just a bunch of people in a room in exile. But okay, don't trust them. And then listen to this. Because even if he is a Gorbachev, oh. he oh will be replaced God. by hundreds of Putins. <laughs> oh and when Lord. they said that, my girlfriend looked right at me as I was slowly losing oh my, my fucking yeah. mind. I literally slammed the fucking table. I was like, it's come on, you wrote liberals. that. Yeah. You actually wrote that. But but you would but when after I thought about it, that is really good writing. You know why? Why? Because why? obviously somebody working for the US State Department mm. would would not think that America during the twentieth century was basically Gilead. Yeah. For <laughs> I mean, in the interaction Gilead America. Mm-hmm. So so in, in in a way it is sensical. That's exactly what a U.S. State Department guy would yeah would lack think. of self awareness. Yeah. I, I, I like I like how they completely skip over Yeltsin as if that was <laughs> yeah. a fucking right, and they skip over the you know the CIA aspect of of Yeltsin coming in after Gorbachev, all that fucking nonsense, mm. the election rigging. These people really have no fucking self awareness, do they? Yeah, dear oh, listener, Lord. if you like the premise of Handmaid's Tale, just go watch uh, Children of Men. Children of Men is a far better uh, execution of the same idea, I think. I've heard. I've never seen it, but I have heard that sentiment before. It's good, and it's a reminder that the worst place on earth is indeed England. (laughs) (laughs) Anglo's out. Anglo's out. (laughs) Oh, my God. Have you seen that meme where it's like, <laughs> so it's, it's a cleaning company of some kind, but the door is open so you can't see the full name and it just says England remover on it. <laughs> and, then, and, then it's, and then it's the Breaking Bat bit where it's like, the, you call them, they know my name, they'll recognize my name. <laughs> they know my voice, you call them. <laughs> oh, that's so fucking funny. I was going to say, sorry to circle back on the on the stupid baby thing. We're going to get into the episode soon, guys. <laughs> Talking to the audience. <laughs> but circling back to the stupid baby thing. Um, if you're interested, actually, in that that psychosocial development aspect of kids and, and how they need attention, uh, look up um, the uh, the blank face experiments with babies, where basically their mothers or their, their parents, basically, would not give them any feedback to the reaction of the kids that the babies uh, hmm. um, are normally used to. And as a result, you can see the baby going through each of its, like its entire repertoire. Huh. All the things it knows that it can do to elicit a reaction, right? It'll smile, mm-hmm. it'll laugh, it'll giggle, it'll cry, it'll start acting scared. It's very interesting, right? Um, wow. And also, by the way, it, it's messed up because it actually fucks with the Yeah, with I was going to say, it's a very sad experiment. It, it, yeah, it establishes... Yeah, I watched that back in uni. They even did stuff like uh, trying to prove if... Uh, by nature, we are we love our in group more or not by giving them like white uh, oh, toys yeah. and then black toys. Mm. There's so many experiments with babies, which, in my opinion, especially I've been recently working on a particular script that involves the discussion about genetics, influence of genetics, what is human nature, does it really exist, blah blah blah, both from a philosophical and uh, scientific perspective, etc. etc. But but the, the baby experiments are kind of wild because they uh, the. A baby is not an equal to a uh, to a grown adult. I mean, we all know this, but we, but for some reason, scientists still think that, for example, they can question the idea of is a baby racist or not by <laughs> uh, is a human racist or not by experimenting on a baby. Mm. Which I mean, I love babies, but they're dumb as a fucking brick. <laughs> yeah. Like they are not a an actual adult human. Mm. So if a baby is more scared of a darker looking fucking toy than a lighter looking toy, that doesn't mean that racism is inbred in us mm. but, but just
just means that this little idiot <laughs> fucking prefers the lighter looking doll. Yeah. Like, like, no, experiments on, on babies just so that we learn more about what babies are. Absolutely legitimate as long as they don't harm it, etc. Et I just lose my mind when I see somebody quoting research done on children or on babies to explain uh, why adults <laughs> behave in particular yeah. ways. It's like one-on-one scientific fucking uh, logic. <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? These people get like hundreds of k's of budget to put babies in rooms, you know. Guys, please, all right. Black kids are just as uh, <laughs> successful, or as smart as, <laughs> as, 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 as white kids. Yes, poor poor, poor kids, kids are just as smart <laughs> as, as white kids. <laughs> as white kids, that's what he said. <laughs> God, what a what an amazing slip that was! Oh, oh fuck it, I love it. I love it. Oh my God, it reminds me. That of was the definition of a fucking Freudian slip. Like yeah, he fucking yeah. knew. Exactly, his brain was yeah. was saying white kids are white people equals yeah. wealthy. That was absolutely in his brain, and he just couldn't not come out. I it's like how when he tried beautiful. to correct the sentiment, still doesn't make sense. What well, uh, poor kids are as smart as black kids, white kids, they're uh, Hispanic. Uh, there are poor people in all these subgroups. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what no, the- he's like, uh, yeah. poor kids are just as as smart as rich kids. You know, that's why we need to level the playing field or whatever. Dude, have you but seen? Instead of saying rich, he, he says white worst because it's deep inside. You, the worst possible combination. It's it's art. It's art. I love that man. It's art. Like he is, he is pure free entertainment. Okay, not free. Basically, no. Cost. Yeah, there's a tremendous <laughs> psychic cost. Yeah, there's. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you seen the because of the new the new the new uh, prime minister uh, in the UK? And first of all, how he misspelled, uh, mispronounced his name. He was like Rashid Sanak or some shit. Oh, he's yeah. like, he completely <laughs> fucked the name up. But then afterwards, he's like, oh, he's become prime minister. As my brother used to say, who would have thunk? And then all these idiot liberals start laughing. It's that fucking... <laughs> my God, sorry, sorry, you got me. You're going to say something. Congratulations, Kakim. You, uh, uh, you Browns have taken over the, the central... <laughs> uh, the center of empire. Yes. How do you feel? Do you feel more progress oh, flowing boy. through your veins? Oh, boy. <laughs> is, is the promise time? I'm coming. Oh Jesus Christ! <laughs> um, the, 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 those those particular yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, you're gonna have to bleep that either yep. way. It's fine. I don't need. I, I don't need to. I don't need to qualify anything. <laughs> oh my God! Is like the UK a good place now? Can we all like migrate there because it's now progressive? Oh, There's boy. no racism. Or, uh, you know. The only good thing about climate change is that Britain will sink into the sea. Oh, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> yeah, that's the only, you know. You know what? When you word it that way, I think we should speed up climate change. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Welcome back, everybody, to our, our lovely D program. Uh, today we'll be we'll have another interesting episode. Today we are joined by a special guest. That is me, Hakeem. <laughs> <laughs> Very tired after like twelve hours, and I'm gonna have three pages of fucking notes to spit at you on Afghanistan. So, that, <laughs> so that's what's happening. Um, we did a, a similar episode like this on Yemen uh, prior. Um, interestingly, that was episode twenty six. And now we're on episode 52, so exactly double. And now it will be the episode on Afghanistan. Wow. Um, yeah. Amazing. So my lecture hour again. N- yeah. Numerology. Basically. Believe yes. it. You know, at this point, I th- I think just because there's a pattern that's been established, I think every 26 episodes we should <laughs> do a one lecture, of these. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to do it more frequently than that, honestly, but uh, whatever. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see what the reception is of this, this sort of stuff. Anyways. 
as as always, if you guys have questions or comments, just interject and throw them out, all right? Because otherwise, it's just gonna be me speaking for like the next hour. You got uh, it. <laughs> oh, I, oh, we will, we will. Uh, after all the reading that Hakim uh, threw at me to learn about Afghanistan, it kind of put to shame a particular uh, Central Asia Central Central Asian politics class that I did with a. Prof- professor from New Zealand who had like Russian Jewish heritage mm. or something and his family had run away from the from the Soviet Union over to New Zealand so everything that he taught us uh, about Central Asia was from kind of that perspective of how you know indirectly the Soviets really fucked it up and now I got to got to read uh, some more proper sources which uh, <laughs> gave a lot more context and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, sharing that uh, to having Hakim share that lovely info with all of you just as he has uh, has shared us with us uh, shared it with us only before you begin I have to say like the Balkans get shit about like infighting and shit <laughs> Jesus fucking yeah. Christ man <laughs> Af- Afghanistan and Yemen as well and in general like yeah. your corner you guys like uh, it's an art know, form uh, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, an yeah. art form you guys a, at some point I, there's like seven Muhammads fighting like other eight <laughs> Muhammads and I'm like what the fuck is going on it's, it's, it's this makes Game of Thrones look like like a fucking sketchbook. Habibi, please. Okay. The Balkans merely adopted it. We've perfected <laughs> the, the craft. Have, there we All go. Right. But, but uh, what was I going to say? Don't worry. Um, the the uh, independent 50, 50 or 51 states of the United States, depend, depending on which 51st <laughs> will, will, will come into play, they're going to surpass us in their own, uh, you know, uh, internal uh, squibbling, quabbling. What the fuck's the word? Yes. <laughs> squabbling <laughs> is, is a good one. Yes. Is it quabbling or squabbling? Squabbling with an S at the squabbling. front. Squabbling. Okay. <laughs> Quibbling. <laughs> Anyways, yes, I mean, quibble, exactly right. A quibble is, is a thing, but it's not... It's, it's a word? Yeah, it's, it's not the same the as fuck squabble. fuck is a quibble? Qui- hold on. Quibble definition. I think it's like a... a Let's take a look. Nitpicking. Uh, a slight objection or criticism yeah, uh-huh. about a trivial... Uh, about trivial... About a trivial matter. All right, nice. So they're archaic. all... They're tangentially related, huh? Okay, fair enough. Uh, archaic, a play All I can words, say is critical, su- critical support for Gilead against uh, the American <laughs> oppressors. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, oh, God, there's going to be some... Uh, people will have the, the flag in the bio. Uh, all right, anyways... Um, of course, in case some idiot, fuck, sorry, liberals on the walls, they're going to draw a parallel with Iran or something. Be like, oh, yeah, yeah. so you think we should nuke Iran? No, this is a fucking joke. Okay, why did you? Why did you explain my joke? Oh God! Oh, I love how you actually. Okay, I, I thought I was being more niche, about, like sending a message only to particular people, and actually, libs are not going to get it. Yeah, it's true. Whatever. Okay. All right. Anyways, to, 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 to <laughs> the meat. To the Our meat. brains are melting together too much. We're spending too much time. <laughs> I love it. I wouldn't have it any other way. All right, so uh, just a, a preamble to all of this, a little uh, introduction. Um, there's a lot of propaganda on every single side of this discussion. So there's a lot of nuance that is skipped entirely. Um, a lot of the popular image on the left is fiction. It doesn't exist. That, you know, secular liberal image with, you know, oh, everything's so progressive and look, oh, the women are wearing skirts and they have their hairs out. Oh boy. Oh, fucking Funko Pops. Oh, <laughs> that, that, that meme, all right, is a meme. It doesn't exist. These were a bunch of pictures taken in highly urban, westernized parts of Kabul, right? We're talking about like five streets, uh, usually around central universities or other, no, you say universities, the university, excuse me. 
excuse me, uh, or other such institutions, whether educational or otherwise, um, even within the height of, you know, Soviet influence within uh, the quote-unquote progressive uh, Afghanistan, there was no such image, right? It's the same with the the pictures of Iran that you see. Um, They're all highly class-based and are not nearly as positive as you think they are. That's number one. Number two, whenever you see any sort of quote-unquote progressive institution or organization that speaks about Afghanistan, they are either directly or indirectly supported by American imperialism at one end or another. Now you're like, oh, well, why? That's That sounds strange. Why would the United States support these things? Yeah, because they had an agenda within Afghanistan and pink imperialism is definitely a thing. And if you were to look into the... the I'll, actually, I'll give an example. There's one organization. It's called the Revolutionary Association of the Women of Afghanistan, uh, which, by the way, is not made up of, like, Afghani women. It's made up of mostly of, uh, like, Afghani expat women, uh, who are... Most of them haven't even been born in Afghanistan or left at very young ages. Uh, and the other bits are basically women from other countries, usually European countries, that somehow represent uh, this this uh, institution. That's number one. And number two, um, they have a nice shiny little uh, awards page on their website. When you click on it, you look at it. It's, it all the awards are like, oh, the the award, the the, the, the Whitey McWhiteson American Freedom <laughs> Eagle Award for you know <laughs> given by the California Board of New Conservatives. It's all weird shit like this, right? Um, Honorary crackers. <laughs> exactly right. Okay. Canceled. Um, yeah. <laughs> so be very wary of these sort of things. Um, even if sometimes they have some like yeah, semi-based things that they say, uh, keep in mind that there is there's always an edge. There's always a an uh, angle. Uh, and yeah, an angle. That's the fucking term. Not an edge. God, I'm stupid. You understand what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. But also, again, uh, fundamentally, there's racism also with with an entire coverage of Afghanistan. Okay, now the preamble is over. Let's let's get into Yay. the actual country. Jesus Christ, we're like, what, 30 minutes in already? <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> okay, it's fine. So, um, where where is Afghanistan? Afghanistan is a mountainous, landlocked country. It's in Central Asia. There's around 40 million people there. Um, there are many languages represented, but there are two major language groups. It's Pashto and Dari. Dari is, depending on who you ask, is either a dialect of Persian uh, or its own language. Uh, very controversial in, in some spheres, but linguistically, it seems to be a dialect of Persian. Um, they're more or less mutually... Uh, intelligible so that's an Arab admitted this oh my god <laughs> meteors <laughs> are falling on the land <laughs> no we don't have any uh, Dari is very you know it's, it's obviously version I, I think it's more Afghanis okay. that want to have their own like a uh, uh, national Thing. identity yeah, yeah, yeah. so you yeah. know yeah. so yeah um, and the, the divisions in the country are fairly different around, around the languages um, Dari is usually spoken in urban centers and it's the lingua franca across Afghanistan but there are many Pashto speakers um, likewise uh, there are many different ethnic groups represented but Pashto uh, the Pashto group is the largest anyways um, the capital is, is Kabul you've heard of it they have amazing food if you haven't had Afghani food before go and find an Afghani restaurant and have their food it's delicious um, it's basically mm-hmm. like our, it's very close to Arabic food uh, but they have a lot more um, like heat to it of course it's a season mm-hmm. our food but they, they it's it's different and they have more different pickled stuff and whatnot very very nice food um, the social structure within Afghanistan is highly tribal and clan based there are many very strong ethnic divides that have existed for centuries, basically. Uh, and that's kind of colored almost every sort of political and social administration within Afghanistan from like 300 years ago until now, even during the Soviet era. And we'll get into that in a bit. 
An interesting side note, there is a dialect of Arabic that is spoken in Central Asia, in certain parts of Central Asia, referred to as Central Asian Arabic. Um, and uh, Afghanistan has, I think, the most speakers of it. I think Uzbekistan is also uh, has hmm. uh, a few of them. They don't number more than a few thousand, really, so it's not that popular of a language. But uh, the Soviets did some ethnographic studies and whatnot. Very interesting. If you look at their their dialect, it's uh, it is clearly Arabic, but it's the usual. You know, the farther you get away from the Arab heartland, the weirder it starts to morph. Mm-hmm. Like when you look at examples of uh, Andalusian Arabic back in the day, for example. Uh, very interesting. Anyways, uh, let's talk more about the, the fundamental material resources, why everybody wants to go to Afghanistan. Um, they are very, very wealthy. And not wealthy as in, like, you know, just Owen and, and, and with um, flush with cash. That's not what I mean. I mean in the Parenti way. Uh, that there, it's an over-exploited country. It's not a poor country. Um, Afghanistan has plenty of lithium. It has plenty of iron. It has zinc and copper. It has opium. It's, I think, one of the largest producers of cannabis. It produces, I think, third or second most uh, largest uh, producer of saffron. Kashmir, there's so much more that uh, material wealth that Afghanistan has. Of course, prime amongst the uh, prime, prime amongst which is trillions upon trillions of dollars of unearthed mineral wealth that the United States officially did like mm-hmm. a geological study of and found and you know, discovered. Uh, by the way, kind of shed some light on why all of Europe <laughs> can't find any H right now because yeah. uh, of what's been currently happening. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 no, exactly right. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> um, ironically, like really, like nobody has a heroin. Like, mm. literally, so they're finding other ways to get high. Sorry for interrupting you. Just, no, no, just, no, no, no. just that little thing just shows just how much shit uh, yeah. Afghanistan actually has. That it, it dries up you know, the, the, the most aging <laughs> fucking continent yeah. on the planet from age. Yeah. yeah, damn yeah. supply chain issues. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly the OG right. supply chain issue. Yeah, no, exactly. The right. most common Slavic argument you you would ever hear about why the Americans were in Afghanistan. I know it's mm. you know maybe two percent of the main reasons, as Hakim will tell us. But everybody, I don't know why, in Eastern Europe is like, man, that's because they make so much fucking heroin there and opium, and the Americans needed to you know keep their their peoples suppressed and, yeah. and drugged mm. up. You know, like a grandpa, <laughs> a Slavic grandpa is gonna give you that argument. Uh, <laughs> and they fly it through our country. They always, for some reason, fly it through that <laughs> grandpa's particular country <laughs> over, yeah, over to the United States on planes. It's fucking incredible. Sorry, sorry. You know what's so funny is apparently somehow Iraq is is like popped up in this in this heroin game somehow. I don't fucking know. We don't have poppy fields. I don't know where the fuck they're growing it. <laughs> the Iraq is popped in. Um, but yeah, so yay, represent, I guess. <laughs> Side <laughs> gig. <laughs> exactly right. But I was gonna say, do you know what's a fucked up term that you're gonna see in almost any uh, like American literature on Afghanistan? Hmm. They will continuously refer to it as the. Saudi, the Saudi Arabia of uh, lithium. Mm. The implication being is that they have so much lithium, like that it's like oil for Saudi Arabia, but lithium's for Afghanistan. And I find that so telling of the American mindset towards yeah. you know, it's like they can't even view it as its own country. It's like <laughs> this brown country has a similar, yeah. <laughs> you know. But yeah, so that's uh, that's pleasant. We'll get into more of this and then the, the these these things in a bit. All right, so a quick history. I'm going to zoom through like the ancient history because otherwise we're going to be here forever. So uh, Afghanistan has been inhabited for thousands of years. It is, it has been a civilizational center for millennia. Not only this, but it, even in during waning periods uh, of their influence, they're still part of the Silk Road. So they still had a fundamental uh, role in uh, trade. Historically, 
Uh, it's been also referred to as the Graveyard of Empires, which is kind of a, a meme a bit uh, that the Afghanis have kind of leaned into. But it is true that uh, for the vast majority of, of uh, military forces that tried to conquer Afghanistan, a good chunk of them, not all of them, but a good chunk of them did fail along the way. And this kind of started, played a, a role in the death or decline of, of that particular uh, power. Um, f- funnily enough, apparently, when you look into the literature, also Mesopotamia, Iraq, is referred to as the Graveyard of Empires, hmm. which I find kind of neat to, to share with the Afghanis. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so there's the, that's the point of nuance. It's, it's kind of just a meme. Anyways, uh, there are several empires as part of, I'm not going to get into it, until uh, it became basically a bunch of small principalities. We're going through the 1500s, 1600s, like that era. Um, they're just small little, you know, basically almost like counties, and they were just constantly feuding with each other. Then they eventually became kind of larger semi-states, I guess. They're still fighting with each other. Modern Afghanistan began with the Durrani dynasty. This was in the 1700s, so the 18th century. Uh, and uh, when it, uh, it declined, of course, it was semi-unified. Declined, and then it became many smaller independent kingdoms that, again, started fighting with each other, as is custom. Uh, they reunited again in the 19th century. Uh, there was massive war of unification and then eventually there was a uh, successful attempt by Dost Muhammad Khan who was the guy who led the uh, unification of Afghanistan as a single political entity for the first time in its history basically Uh, and he's kind of revered as a national figure almost uh, in the state currently but I think like three weeks or something after he managed to achieve <laughs> this this uh, historical event of, of unifying Afghanistan, he died, uh, and <laughs> everybody started fighting again. Civil war, speed run, any percent. Now we're into like you know the eighteen hundreds, and Britain is being a little uh, you know fucky wucky. All right, it's being a little sus. <laughs> Sorry, and, and uh, there's something that is called the Great Game that begins. Now the Great Game was. The idea that a power within Central Asia will be uh, disproportionately powerful because it will control uh, on-land uh, trade routes, uh, but not only this, but uh, it will have you know other uh, plenty of natural resources and all that kind of stuff. So basically, all eyes were on Central Asia, and the Tsarist Empire was expanding into Central Asia at the time, and Great Britain was in India. And both of them were basically fighting against each other. They didn't want control over Central Asia to go to either. The British didn't want the Russians to control it. The Russians didn't want the British to control it. So that's why it was called the Great Game. Um, They basically just kind of bickering with each other. The British were the first ones to actually put a you know a leg in into this into this bullshit right um in which they attempted to basically subjugate afghanistan from coming in from india uh and bring it under at least british political uh like as a protectorate or have control over its political institutions uh in um, basically the only way that the english know which is war uh, so they started mm-hmm. the um first anglo-afghan war <laughs> which was in the which was in 1838 I say first because there wasn't only a second, there was a second and a third Anglo-Afghan war. <laughs> and technically there was a fourth Anglo-Afghan war when they came back uh, just a bunch of years ago, but um, I'm getting ahead of myself. So in 1838, the British come and they get their asses handed to them. They fucking, they wipe the floor with them, right? <laughs> Which is uh, beyond based. However, 40 years later or so, in 1878, the British come back again and they uh, are successful this time around. They uh, win several victories uh, and they manage to push uh, British political influence over Afghanistan through puppet government. So they don't have direct control over uh, Afghanistan, but they control the people who basically hold the political power. 
then afterwards, uh, in 1919, so right after World War One, there's the third Anglo-Afghan War, in which basically Afghanistan becomes independent, and in 1926 becomes officially a kingdom uh, under Amanullah Khan, which was basically referred to as the Kingdom of Afghanistan. This was the longest-lasting political institution uh, in modern Afghan history. Uh, it's a monarchy that lasted for almost 50 years, until in, in, um, in 1973, the king was overthrown by his cousin, who happened to be a socialist, Mohammed um, Daoud Khan. Uh, there's a lot of similar names, so I'm sorry. <laughs> you're gonna, <laughs> you're just going to have to <laughs> bear with me. Uh, as I was saying, military coup, 1973. The reason that this coup happened, that overthrew this, the monarchy, is generally famine in different parts of the country. There were some reforms uh, that were promised, but had poor performance or were carried out too slowly. Uh, and general discontent. People were just unhappy, so um, there was a vibe in the country. Let's say it wasn't bussin', as the kids say. <laughs> <laughs> and as a result, a bunch of military people kind of picked up on this, and they decided to coup. It was a surprisingly good coup. Uh, I'll get into this, actually, this, this point, because it's I kind of a I give it 9 out of 10 coup. <laughs> <level. laughs> yeah, exactly right, yeah. Um, so anyways, so 1973, coup, and then there's a declaration of the Republic of Afghanistan afterwards, right? So it's no longer a monarchy. Uh, interestingly, there was a little-known party at the time called the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, uh, which was an explicitly Marxist-Leninist party. And we're going to refer to this from now on as the PDPA, because I'm not going to fucking say People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan every fucking time <laughs> I refer to it. All right, You have so. to agree, like, <laughs> name five out of ten, Max. Yeah, it sucks. It fucking sucks. <laughs> PDPA, uh, it's, it's uh, very bad. Uh, not, yeah. Originality score two. Uh, power level seven, yeah. and Dude, it's, most it's, important, uh, when you cut it short, sounds horrible, absolutely horrible. One out of ten. Mm, so all in all, five out of ten. People's United Revolutionary Front Democratic. Fucking, like, <laughs> there's a bingo chart for this shit at this point. How many words good. do you want to put in it, comrade? All of yeah. them. <laughs> like, if you were to say people's, isn't democratic redundant? Or democratic would make people's redundant? But then again, the U.S. party is called the Democrat. Anyways, um, I'm getting sidetracked. The, the 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 republic was declared again, 1973, and there's this little known party called the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. Shit name that was played a surprise large role, um, which got a bunch of feathers uh, ruffled uh, in the United States. Um, we're going to get into this in a second. But basically, the, the USSR didn't play any role in this. There's absolutely zero evidence that the USSR even really knew that much about what was going on at the time. Uh, at best, you could say they had an idea that there was going to be a coup. But they didn't know that there was a, a Marxist party, a Marxist-Leninist party, you, mostly pro-Soviet Marxist-Leninist party, that uh, carried this out. Which is interesting to know, because usually the Soviets are on top of this sort of stuff. Funnily enough, when you read into the literature, uh, there are basically, uh, what's it, not memorandums, fucking telegrams, I don't know, basically information from uh, American state institutions who were like, this, the KGB had to have fucking played a role. This was orchestrated by, mm -hmm. the, by the KGB. The Soviets were in on it. They fucking paratroop people in something. <laughs> because apparent, because the coup was actually very highly professional, was carried out very well. Um, very few people died. Uh, very quick. It was carried, carried out exceptionally quickly. There was a lot of planning and it was carried out professionally. And the Americans were like, the Browns can't possibly do this, all right? The, the KGB had to fucking... The KGB game it went in there, licked some balls, got the work done, right? And then handed it off to... Um, Quick to, adventure, uh, in and out, 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly right. Um, that, well, that's what the, the Soviets thought it would be afterwards. We're going to get <laughs> yeah, into that. <laughs> Anyways, 
So from 1973 until 1977, it was kind of like a loose republic. They, were, they had some reforms. They're trying to get uh, some, you know, loose democracy going. Uh, but uh, towards the middle of 1977, the guy who carried out the coup, Mohammed Daoud Khan, the, the cousin of the king who was also a socialist, he started to consolidate power underneath him and only him. And afterwards, he started approaching the U.S. and Pakistan for, for support. He started, you know, being a bit sus himself. Uh, and his uh, support base, the PDPA, which is, again, as I mentioned, explicitly Marxist-Leninist, um, they uh, didn't really like this very much, right? They didn't think about, they didn't think that him approaching Pakistan first, and particularly the United States uh, for support, uh, was a thing that uh, reflected well on the country or reflected well on their interests as a people. So uh, they overthrew him. Fun, again. Uh, and another coup called the Sour Revolution. Sour means uh, April. Um so basically it's called the april revolution which again by the way i love how it's always fucking the october revolution the april revolution yeah. the fucking november <laughs> <laughs> like, I, right again get some fucking get some creativity but what can you do um and always great why is everything the great the great something revolution right great proletarian revolution you know fair enough whatever i get it for propaganda but also it's we need uh, some better keywords in there this is just not yeah. interesting we're gonna run out of months exactly. at some point like the october revolution was the great october revolution fair yeah. enough but like you know uh, what happens when there's another revolution in October? Yeah, <laughs> the Lesser October Revolution. <laughs> you know what? Uh, that would be actually the Second kind of October Revolution. Yeah. Anyways, so uh, in in uh, 1978, uh, as mentioned, the the PDPA starts getting annoyed at what this Muhammad Daoud Khan guy was doing, um, and they, along with a bunch of military people, uh, decide to overthrow him again in the April Revolution, the Sour Revolution. Right. Um, the vast majority of the people that took part in this. Uh, coup or this revolution also took part in the original uh, Republican coup in 1973. Um, so you, the, the, there's a particular trend. It's the same people kind of calling the shots. Oh right? shit! Here we go people. again. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's, and it's, the, and it's the same people who are uh, carrying it out also on the ground, not just you know calling the shots. Mm-hmm. Very neat. So now we're gonna get. I'm gonna give you a very quick rundown of the names of the people <laughs> who uh, oh, yeah. carried it out, um, just so that you familiarize them yourself with them now. But we're gonna get into more details later, okay? So the first guy that came to lead Afghanistan once it became a socialist country, which, by the way, that, that, there's some nuance that we're gonna get in there, in, into there, into that soon, is a guy named Nur Muhammad Taraki, okay? His name is written in Pashto. When you read it in Arabic and Pashto, it's read out differently. Um, so I'm going to pronounce it as Taraki. It may be Tarqi, it may be Tarki, it may be something else. I don't fucking know. I don't read Pashto, okay? But the the way I read it is basically Muhammad Taraki. Anyways, uh, he was the first guy that led Afghanistan, all right? He was, uh, he was uh, assassinated uh, just like a year later by the Afghani leadership, which is pretty neat. <laughs> because... <laughs> Because this is not the first assassination. <laughs> but imagine imagine listen, him listening to this from beyond and, and just hearing. Yeah, you know, exactly. like, so he was assassinated, and that was neat. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah. <laughs> oh my, that happened with a patient today. Actually, some patient came in, and they had some was assassinated? something else unrelated. Yeah. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> no. Oh, they oh, call <laughs> and you're like, I can't read your name. I'm not Pashto. Uh, uh, no. well, my, my, uh, my, my life is not that exciting. But no, basically, the, the person had a broken finger for something unrelated. Uh, and I was looking at their finger, and they were talking about it. i was like okay so what happened to your finger i was like oh i broke it and i was like oh how neat basically is what i said <laughs> oh, <Jesus. laughs> 
<laughs> and the guy was like neat I was like, yeah. yeah exactly anyways sorry so yeah Nur Muhammad Taraki he was the first leader of Afghanistan and then he was assassinated by the Afghan leadership in 1979 so just a year after uh, the, the revolution um, generally there was discontent around his leadership because the there began a anti-government insurgency uh, underneath his leadership which by the way is kind of unfair to say that it's just uh, it was him particularly it was the very fact that the, there was the, a the Republican, yeah. yeah, basically the Republican Republican transition first, and then the socialist transition second was shook up Afghani society quite a bit. So there's already a lot of discontent, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people who kept coming in and out of power, and lots of grudges being held, etc., etc. So it's not surprising that he. Uh, it could have been anybody else, is my point. Uh, but anyways, he so he died. Right, <laughs> we came. We uh, we saw he died, as that <laughs> fucking cunt uh, Clinton said. The um, king is dead. Long live the king. Yeah, exactly. So he died. All right. Then afterwards, uh, Hafizullah Amin comes to power. Okay, uh, it's uh, for some reason they. <laughs> it's a nice name that he has. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, so uh, he was the second leader. He led the country for two months. Okay, but then he also was assassinated. <laughs> <laughs> This time, though, he wasn't assassinated by the Afghani leadership. This time, he was assassinated by Soviet forces, right? Mm. Uh, we're going to get into why this happened. But the fucking... It, the, his assassination was a James Bond fucking movie, all right? It, it, I've never heard anything more James Bond-esque than this fucking bullshit. The operation was called Storm 333, all right? Storm thir- 333. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. In a, in a, just, to, just to say, if you were to be assassinated, you would want the fucking the, yeah, the title of the operation name. to be cool like that. <laughs> but yeah. How'd they bonk him? Uh, they bonked him by, uh, I think they, they took him out back and then just shot him, I think is what they uh. did. They basically attacked the, the um, a, a presidential like palace area thing, but it wasn't a presidential palace. It's kind of like at, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Hmm. Um, and uh, they sent in paratroopers and people under the fucking uh, dead of night and whatnot. And it was kind wow. of fucked up because uh, surprisingly the Afghani uh, like uh, internal security was decent right um so they put up quite a bit of a fight and they gave uh, um, they gave the soviets you know a run for their money uh and uh, then eventually basically they got to him they killed a bunch of guards they killed him and they killed a soviet doctor accidentally that was treating him which Whoops. is a big big oof i think um <laughs> but i mean killing him was also might have been a big oof but who knows he was actually yeah. kind of shit we'll get into that anyways after him came Babra Karmal, okay? Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, but uh, Babra Karmal had a, a good run, all right? He lasted until 1986. And then he was replaced because he fell out of political favor uh, with uh, Muhammad Najibullah, uh, who basically lasted until 1992 when uh, socialists of Afghanistan fell. Uh, and then he lived until 1996 uh, in basically an embassy. And then he uh, the, the Taliban came in and killed him as well. So uh, <laughs> three out of the four uh, leaders were basically assassinated and the, the one Jeez. guy that wasn't yeah the, the one guy that wasn't basically fell out of political favor which in a weird way saved his life so huh. um that was the quick history all right we're 40 minutes in fuck me all right i'm gonna try to <laughs> i'm gonna try to, that's all right it's all worries. interesting no worries I really, I really hope so. Fuck me. All right, so I'm going to give you a bit of history of the PDPA, the party, okay? This party was founded in 1965 and in like two weeks split, as is leftist tradition, nice. into several factions, mm. all right? <laughs> I, I'm memeing it that it happened two weeks. It happened over like two years, but that's still kind of garbage. Uh, in, in 1967 is when the major split happened, uh, or it coalesced really, uh, it crystallized. 
there were two major factions. There's four factions in general that were popular, like in in society, and then there was many more factions otherwise otherwise underneath. So you know, um, uh, maybe Lena had a thing about this anti-factionalism. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> maybe he kind of had a point. Um, but uh, the two major ones, which were by the, the vast majority, was one called Khalq, uh, which is uh, refers to as masses. Um, that's the, the, the translation. Uh, and uh, then you have the parcham, which means flag. They had two particular differences. The khalq, by the way, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right in Dari. I'm reading it as an Arab word, uh, so excuse me. <laughs> uh, but uh, khalq, the or masses uh, party, or, or not party, excuse me. Um, uh, faction. Faction, thank you. Uh, was mostly based or, or made up of uh, rural Pashtun-speaking uh, people. They were the vast majority of the party throughout its history, right? Then you have the Parcham, the, the flag um, faction, which was mostly urban, relatively westernized, upper class, Dari speaking, uh, and a minority uh, faction. So you already see that they're divided kind of along ethnic lines, right? Mm. The Khaq are mm-hmm. mostly Pashtun uh, or Pashto, uh, and the uh, Parcham are mostly uh, Dari speaking of other, you know, their Hazara, their Tajik, their all the other uh, ethnicities of, of uh, Afghanistan for the most part. Now, why was there a split? The reason they split in the beginning was they had different perceptions of uh, the revolutionary uh, potential of Afghanistan, okay? The Khalq uh, faction, the masses faction, they believed that revolution could be achieved the classical Leninist way, the Leninist fashion. You build a tightly disciplined working class party, uh, a vanguard party, you take power through revolution, etc., etc. Basically, the the typical Leninist uh, perspective without much nuance, let's say that much mm-hmm. because the Lenin's position is actually far more nuanced than that. The Parcham, the flag um, faction, which was way smaller, they believed and also so did the, the Soviet officials and that's why technically if you look into the literature the Soviets kind of gave underhanded support more to the Parcham uh, and they always tried to kind of big, big them up or like build them up. The, the, this uh, faction, the, the smaller faction, they believed that Afghanistan was too un, uh, undeveloped or underdeveloped uh, for the Leninist strategy, and instead they should have a national democratic front of patriotic and anti-imperialist forces and other parties. They should have a union of the national bourgeoisie, etc., etc., and all this had to be fostered in order to bring the country like uh, step-by-step closer to uh, a proper socialist revolution. So the idea is kind of maybe like, uh, the, the original approach that the Chinese had, or the mm-hmm. approach that Vietnam and Laos had, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I was, personally, if can I, I jump sorry, in, real, just one quick yeah, question: How underdeveloped are we? Are we talking? Was Afghanistan yes. at this point? Because you know, R- Russia was a you know a pre-industrial backwater before the revolution. Mm, that is very true. I will say um, Afghanistan was far more underdeveloped than than Russia. The difference being is that Afghanistan never had any industrial basis. Mm. Russia was huge, but in Moscow and St. Petersburg, there was an industrial proletariat, right? Uh, But when you look at even, for example, India, as undeveloped as it was, the very core industrial centers uh, did have at least some industrial proletariat. Afghanistan was by vast majority rural, uh, peasant-based. There was very little industry to speak of. And whatever industry that did exist was incredibly precarious. So um, looking at it from this lens, you couldn't even call it semi-feudal. It was thoroughly feudal. that doesn't mean that in Kabul there weren't like railroads or something, but railroads don't make a, a socialist revolution, especially when uh, the um, percentage of the population that is considered proletarian is so sig- insignificant. 
That being said, though, there is a possibility for socialist revolution, even in these countries, and that's kind of the, the path that the Chinese laid mm-hmm. out for us. Um, but uh, their revolution was still fairly young, um, and the party was particularly overzealous, and there was a bunch of other issues. We're going to get into their failures in a second. Um, but that's a very good question, yeah. Afghanistan TLDR was very underdeveloped, even more so than India and Russia at the time. Cool. Thanks, Daddy. <laughs> no worries, <Abby. laughs> But anyways, like like I was saying, so the the Pachan, like I was saying, they they thought that we should have a um, a, a united front of sorts. Uh, regardless, even in the end, it doesn't matter um, what they the two believe because the the masses f- uh, faction, the Khalq faction, they're the ones who won out. And even after capturing power, by the way, uh, their collective following was fairly limited to a educated minority in mostly urban areas. I I didn't mention really the specifics of the other factions because there are four factions i mentioned we just talked about two the other two were um way smaller and they were mostly uh what's it called um they had to do with the uh, minority ethnic like uh separatism and stuff like that uh so kind of cringe politics in, in in some regard uh like petty nationalist stuff mm. in in one side and the other side was you know other minority politics they're important but not enough to like you know split the party over this should be part of a actual dedicated and combined party program but this is a discussion for another time um so i'm not going to talk about the other factions these are the only two we're going to talk about today okay um su- subscribe to the patreon <laughs> and then and then we'll, we'll we'll i'll give you as much lecturing big as like. uncut episode <laughs> exactly <laughs> moving on so like i was saying the party base regardless of which faction you would have liked to be part of or were part of the vast majority was a small educated minority usually fairly urban um even those that would make up the government later on even though maybe when they were kids were from a rural background afterwards mostly urban educated people with ideals and perspectives that were radically different from the vast majority of the afghani population which is very rural highly conservative uh, amongst other things. So now to bring you back to uh, the, the the timeline, just so you remember, 1973, the Republican um, coup, so it was made a republic, and 1977-1978, then you had the Sour Revolution, where, you know, socialism, the first step of socialism uh, for Afghanistan, basically. A year prior to this revolution, 1977, the USSR specifically played a pivotal role in bringing the two factions together. The Khalq faction, which was re- uh, led by Nur Muhammad Taraki, which was the first guy to lead uh, Socialist Afghanistan, the one who was assassinated. Uh, and the Parcham faction of uh, Babrak Karmal, uh, who uh, was, again, he represented a minority faction, uh, and he was the third leader of uh, revolutionary Afghanistan. He was the only guy that wasn't assassinated, which is interesting enough, basically. With all this said, though, even though they were reconciled by the Soviets, even into the the revolutionary and government period, uh, the two factions basically acted like independent parties uh, and maintained unofficial separation, which is kind of a big fucking oof, (laughs) if you think Mm -hmm. about it. Um, And again, Lenin kind of had a point about this uh, ban on factionalism thing. All right, so immediately after the Sour Revolution, a bunch of good things and a bunch of bad things happened, okay? Uh, the very I'll list some good things, and then we're going to get into the cringe things. Uh, the very first thing was rapid modernization. This was centered on industrialization, which was basically like carried 90% by the Soviets. Um, they had a lot of enthusiasm, the, the Afghani leadership, but they had no specialists. They had no people, basically not, not nearly enough educated people who can carry this sort of stuff. Uh, and they had no industrial base. So it was basically the Soviets um, exporting their own uh, like uh, specialists and technical experts and uh, like basically constructing entire factories that are made in the Soviet Union mm. and they're just carried over, etc., etc. 
But what can you do as an undeveloped country? But that was one of the good things that they did. Another thing was massive literacy programs. Illiteracy in Afghanistan stood around like 90% that they couldn't read or write, which is insane to think about. Uh, and they managed to get that quite, up quite a bit. They never reached 100% because of the turmoil of uh, the, the uh, government and also the fact that the revolutionary government never had control over all of Afghanistan, uh, all of Afghanistan not even at the very beginning. But we'll Nobody really that. ever... I think had or even at this point has mm. complete control mm. over Afghanistan. Correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah, no, no, a, a country right. that with such a peculiar geography is, um, I mean, a nightmare for statescraft, let alone uh, complete mm. like military control over it. So even yeah. an invading army, an invading army has like <laughs> no way of taking all the all the territory, but mm. even as you said, the, the a, a government has no way of actually knowing what is going on everywhere, unless I don't know. There's there's more cops than citizens. <laughs> exactly, but a very very good point. So as mentioned, yeah, industrialization, literacy programs. They started a land reform program, which on paper was good, but in reality was incredibly inadequate. It was very top down. They didn't explain to people what they were doing. They just kind of showed up with guns and then they took land from some people and gave it to others um, and then left, by the way. So basically there was this blood feud between families. <laughs> it was so stupid the way they did it. It was <laughs> genuinely so fucking stupid. It shows that they had no experience, right? And you think, this is what I say, I, I, I would say you'd think that the Soviets would have told them, but I think the Soviets did tell them. They just didn't mm. actually bring it into practice because they didn't have enough cadres. They didn't have enough people educated. So there was kind of a point to this, the, the parcham, the, the, the flag faction they did have a point that yes afghanistan is technically still too underdeveloped and they had the biggest soviet the, the biggest socialist power literally next door they shared, shared a border mm -hmm. with them <laughs> what fucking luck do we have right now um <laughs> basically a good study is required that's what i'm saying it's not impossible but anyways yeah. moving on um i'll talk about land reform again in a bit but it was it was garbage they did other good things though emancipation of women usually through employment so it was you know material right it wasn't just like slogans mm. um and they started you know other stuff about, uh, they, they had certain feudal practices that existed in Afghanistan uh, that they abolished, like usury, uh, which is basically exorbitant interest rates or interest rates in general. Forced marriage, for example, uh, all these sort of things were uh, abolished, which funnily enough are all uh, things that are prohibited Islamically as well. Uh, so it shows that there's a lot of cultural practice that isn't just, oh, the religion, blah, blah, because there's a lot of very shit analysis, both on the right and the left, that just kind of distills it in a weird uh, hyper simplified where it's like oh it's just because they're religious which is incredibly stupid yeah. because uh, across the border in Tajikistan they're also religious but they didn't have these issues anyways there are certain cultural changes that they imposed that were widely unpopular the flag was changed, which was a big deal to Afghanis. Um, it was changed to, again, something I never understood, this bland fucking red. I like the red, okay? I like the red and I like having a star. Mm. But not every fucking flag has to be just red with a single star, <laughs> all right? Um, and they, they, that's what they did. And they very quickly changed it back because it was super unpopular. And I understand why, because if you look at their, their flag, it's actually beautiful. Um, so that was number one. And number two, which was a big, ooh, fucking huge, oof, astronomical, catastrophic <laughs> oof, was state atheism. Um, oh, yeah. That is the biggest fuck up. I've spoken about this. This is the biggest fuck up of the international left movement just in general. It's the worst thing that they ever fucking done. But in Afghanistan, it was especially bad, not only because they, it was a thing that happened, but they couldn't even make up their mind themselves. So it was like two weeks of state atheism and then two weeks of like, you know, actually, no, we changed our mind. And then one week was like, you know what, half. And it was like patchy application throughout the country. It was, you know, I'm not saying it would be better if they were, if they sit on state atheism and applied it universally. That's equally cringe. 
It's yeah, interesting that places yeah. like that would not just default to saying, okay, you know, the holy book says that, mm. or it has a lot of similarities or commonalities with yeah. revolutionary thought. Like, uh, yeah. I'll tell you why. It's, it's because it's mostly urban, highly westernized, uh, like, you know, students who became, who joined these parties. They have absolutely no connection to the rural population or the vast majority Right, there. Most of them probably had parents that studied mm. abroad and all that kind of nonsense, or they themselves went and studied abroad uh, in a in a country where the vast majority of the people couldn't even read and write. Yeah. So you end up with a huge disconnect between who the people are Massive. that are leading and the uh, what's it called the population themselves, the actual masses. Which is hilarious because the major majority faction that institute this nonsense called themselves masses. Um, <laughs> so, anyways, uh, another thing which was hugely unpopular was the abolishment of Sharia, so uh, Islamic law, traditional Islamic law, in every aspect, basically, which is also, again, ridiculous, just uh, establishing common law. Uh, Hakeem, will you take, like, of... two seconds to, to speed yeah. run what Sharia law is to people? Because when sure. Americans hear that, they instantly think, oh, you're out stoning people. <laughs> um, uh, anybody who says that to me will be stoned, and should be. <laughs> uh, no, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, Sharia law, or sh- just Sharia, because Sharia law is just, it's like saying law, law, it's fucking stupid. Um, the Arabic term basically means, like, a way to a watering well, and it is uh, the Islamic law derived from various sources uh including the the quran itself sayings of the prophet um your own uh what's called like rational process other sorts of uh sources of um of, of uh, evidence uh and they cover every as- aspect and facet of life it's not just like you know a hudud which is what you're thinking about the punishment is usually the smallest part of any compendium on islamic law and that's why i recommend people to actually read about these things instead of just saying oh x x thing is bad mm. uh, you should educate yourself uh, but yeah, the vast majority of it actually deals with very boring things like um, uh, what's it called? Contracts, like how your uh, financial contracts, uh, marriage, things like how you should, you know, fasting and how you should pray. Um, the kind of like Levitical law from Christianity. Yeah, kinda, but even like way deeper. Okay. Uh, it's a it's, it's a way larger um, group of, uh, of 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 a school of jurisprudence, basically, and it's several schools and whatnot. Uh, and there's a huge diversity in opinion as well. So you can't ever say, "Oh, Sharia law says X," because uh, first of all, it's just Sharia, and second of all. There are so many differing opinions and, and varieties. The range of uh, of, of, of uh, perspectives is so wide that you, there's never just one. You can't say one. You'd have to say, according to X, Y, Z, with this particular evidence that they've used, this is the particular uh, ruling for X, Y, Z action or, 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 or process or whatever, right? Uh, but people don't like nuance. People just like blank statements. Anyways, um, so this is something that governed every aspect of life, basically, and they decided to get rid of it uh, for imported, like, half French and half other fucking, like, common law garbage uh, that most post-colonial countries uh, did. Um, another thing that they did, which is also a big uh, oof, was they forcibly devealed women and forcibly cut off beards from men, mm. which is, <laughs> like, again, you think you'd think you would think before doing this sort of stuff, but they did do it, right? And they did other things where it's like, oh, um, you're a woman and you want to go to university? Uh, well, you can't wear a hijab. It's illegal. Uh, so either you stay uneducated in a rural community, 
uh, but get to keep your you know, hijab, or you have to forcibly take it off to be able to educate yourself, which is not a good precedent to set mm. up, right? And there was other thing, other recommendations, not recommendations, excuse me, laws pushed on men and whatnot. These things were they facilitated between them as well. Sometimes they'd impose them, sometimes they'd pull back because uh, you know the forces of reason would kind of uh, come up, but then they would you know be pushed down again and you know, this sort of shit. This happened in almost every socialist country at some point. And uh, no matter, and no matter what one like you always hear the liberal in the wall now for some reason i'm hearing the atheist in the wall no matter what perspective you have on these particular things uh just from the standpoint of basic 101 political rule and strategy this was not shooting yourself in the leg this was cutting your balls <laughs> off and eating them right in front of everybody and calling it normal yeah uh, <laughs> it, 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 but to me, like it's uh, like Hakim already perfectly eloquently explained it. I just like I'll, I'll just leave with this comment. To me, it's absolute such a disconnect. No matter how long you've lived abroad, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, sounds absolutely insanely wild to me. The only way for me to explain it to myself is through a false sense of even elitism. Yes, we are leaders of a socialist uh, pro-masses, as they call themselves, uh, party. Yet, in order for you to so violently and directly completely disregard a whole way of life of mm. your fellow countrymen and women, apparently, to me just reeks of... of uh, of the, a feeling, an eternal feeling of thinking that all of those rules are inherently lesser than what you believe are are superior ones. So, so it's yeah. not just disconnect; it's a sense of uh, of superiority, which is very disgusting to see uh, in comrades. But you know, mm. what can you do? Yeah, no, very. I mean, there's things you can do. There's things you can do. But you get what yeah. the, this is, yeah, yeah. This, you get my point. Exactly right. No, very beautifully put. And there's always some fucking cringe atheist who's going to be like, oh, but no, those yeah. are actually good things. Blah. It's like, no, shut the fuck up. All right. That's why you guys should never, ever come. Like, <laughs> if you have sense, right? If you have sense, you know what you're supposed to do. There's nothing wrong with being an atheist. But uh, you just can't be dogmatic actually, no, about it. Just like anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And you can't forcibly impose on one of the most religious societies on earth or yeah. whatever. Anyways, we're going to we're going to move on. Another other like big yikes things that they did was uh, there's a bunch of other religious practices that they outlawed, but we're going to get more we're just going to skip over that. Um there was weird like levels of ethnic discrimination um because of oh, old ethnic lines like you know the divisions along ethnic lines. So certain like low tier menial work for example uh was almost always reserved for certain uh, segments of society certain ethnic groups um even within like party organizations which is really fucked up hmm. uh, but again that shows that you know there was not enough education of, of the cadre and of course a general trend within society which believed that they were being forcibly westernized which none of them liked the vast not it's not like a vast majority all of basically all aside from the smallest sliver uh, in in urban centers heavily disliked anyways so the point being is that despite there being a diverse reasons for people being unhappy with the with this revolutionary government, the one coalescing factor that they all could unite on was religion. It was the one common factor between all the forces, whether you're uh, dispossessed because of land uh, reform or because of some educational thing or ethnic discrimination or whatever else, uh, all of them at the end of the day were of the same religion. So that was kind of the common point between all these forces that are dissatisfied with the PDPA government. Um, and already in 1978, the year of the revolution, uh, various revolts and student demonstrations and otherwise began occurring. Uh, so we're going to get into this in a second, the, the, the fucked up aspects of the um, revolts that began. 
a bit of like context again, just around the membership, just to kind of drive the point home. It's controversial because it's it's really hard to get the numbers on it because the the PDPA themselves lied on how many members they had, uh, and they mm. regularly inflated their numbers. Like they would before a big party congress, they would just accept like sixty thousand peasants just randomly who have never they didn't pass an ideological exam of any kind. They've never done any party work. They just want to you know like pad the numbers, and then afterwards they're just kind of like told to go back home. Uh, mm. So it's difficult to actually know the gen- the genuine number of, of members, but at most, at the most, there were eighteen thousand genuine members. Eighteen thousand. Um, just to give an example, Bulgaria, which at the time had nearly half the population of Afghanistan, had a million party members. Wow! It had just so you know, like the difference in in, in political participation on a social scale. Um, there was basically no popular support uh, or very little of it um, with let's say they were antagonistic sources to the revolutionary government but you can still take their opinion into account at the very most 5% of the population had a hand in supporting the PDPA government 5% which is again uh, not not good (laughs) Um, even if you're being generous and you were to say 10%, 15%, which by the way, there was there was never the case. It was never that high. Um, that's still a, a, abysmal um, uh, performance. Uh, not only this, but of course, there were still completely the, uh, there was no unity. Um, ethnic line, uh, ethnic lines sooner determined political affiliation rather than ideology. Uh, and uh, all the differing factions at one point or another had some ethnic, ethnic support of some kind, right? But as we mentioned before, uh, this is a thing that's been forever in Afghanistan. So this is not the fault of the uh, revolutionary government. Anyways, so as mentioned, in 1978, already the year of the revolution, there were revolts and and people who are kind of starting to fight back against the central government. Um, this This became an insurgency in a weird roundabout way. The way the insurgency began was through the land reforms, because land reforms, although they were carried out and not very well, they didn't actually improve the situation of the poor peasants they were meant to improve the lives of. A lot of it was because of really bad or patchy execution. There was a lot of incompetence in how it was carried out. There was corruption. uh, And of course, just basically no education either on the side of the peasantry or on the side of the cadres. So you ended up with basically, like I mentioned, one person gets the land taken away, but they were actually a small peasant. And it was given to another guy who would have possibly been wealthier or not. And then it starts like a blood feud between families. Or it was uh, like a large, um, what's it called, feudal uh, landowner that they break up the land of, but then they they don't actually distribute it amongst peasants so it's just land that ends up empty shit like this they, they, they fucked up mm. <laughs> on a ridiculous scale it's actually impressive how badly they they they, they um they carry this out uh, and that's why again i always know I, I list afghanistan i list uh, romania and poland as not good examples of, of socialism um but in a weird way actually putting romania with with uh, with uh, afghanistan seems like an insult to romania and romania was a shit <laughs> example <laughs> well, the polish is a different case we'll do a thing about that um Anyways, so just to, just to give you an idea, in 1978... Ceausescu right? smiling so hard right now. I'm not the worst. Oh, I am not the worst. Oh, my God. Oh, fuck. And then there's just Pol Pot who's just fucking looking up with his... With his, uh, it, with, oh, yeah. with his Wojak eyes. With puppy eyes. He's like, oh, please. Oh, fuck. And yeah. we're like, we can't see you. We don't have glasses. You fucking took them. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, fuck. Look, hey, uh, Pol Pot was a piece of shit, but the one thing he did was purge the French. Anyways. <laughs> oh, <nice. laughs> 
<laughs> I'm teasing. Our I'm poor teasing. French listeners, we yeah. love you. Uh, yeah, no, we do love you. We do. It's just you can't help the 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 uh, misfortune of your birth. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing. This is all fucking jokes. So, in 1978, the year of the revolution, 24 out of the 28 provinces at the time saw violent anti-government activity, so uprisings of some kind. 24 out of 28 provinces, which is again a kind of a big oof. <laughs> Not right? great. The yeah, the one that started it all, really, is one called the Herat Uprising, which happened in 1979. This was the first major sign of anti-government resistance. That there was uh, coordination, they had, uh, um, tr- they were decently trained, they had guns and whatnot. Um, this is the thing, though. Whenever you all of a sudden see a random insurgency pop up, and they all have guns, and there's some level of training, and they're fighting semi-decently against the government, people automatically start thinking, oh, some there must be a th- some third hand playing here, mm. which is a good assumption to normally have. But in some cases, it kind of goes over the, the, the um, what's it called, like it goes beyond the, the pale of what is reasonable. Uh, because if you look up, look back in, Afgan, uh, in uh, Afghani history, you're going to notice that they have a historical like tradition of uh, people basically banding together to these militia armies in local regions to defend them because of some like anti uh, some uh, unpopular government action. Uh, this has happened for hundreds of years. This is not something new. They even have a term for it. I, I don't remember the term for it now, but this is something that is uh, part of their culture. So this was not something that was um, sponsored by a third power. They, at the time, the Afghani government did think, and the Soviets also had a bit of a, a meme about it, where they thought that the Iranian revolution had happened recently, um, and they thought, oh, uh, maybe the Iranians are pushing, you know, for something there, but there was no evidence of this. Also, the Soviets were like, oh, it's those fucking Maoists, um, <laughs> because there was a Maoist insurgency later, and the Maoists at this time were all, you know, all into their fucking, oh, social imperial USSR nonsense. Um, and as a result, uh, basically supported any anti-Soviet central government uh, movements, basically around the world, but particularly in Afghanistan. We're going to get into all this. Um, the general secretary of the party and the leader of the country at the time, uh, Nur Muhammad Taraki, the guy who was assassinated, he contacted Alexei Kozigin, who was the um, chairman of the USSR uh, Council of Ministers at the time, and he asked him for practical and technical assistance with men and armaments. This was the first time that um, the uh, Afghani government would request Soviet uh, military action within their government. They would act, ask for direct help. Um, and Kosygin refused. The Soviet leadership refused. Uh, Taraki, being a guy who doesn't want to you know, take no fair answer, then he went to Brezhnev uh, and he, directly. And he asked him. And Brezhnev re- replied surprisingly in a coherent way for once. Um, he said that f- um, uh, full Soviet intervention would only play into the hands of our enemies, both yours and ours, which is very apt and correct. Um, so again, he also, um, what's it called, uh, refused. Brezhnev did tell Taraki, though, advised them to ease up on any drastic social reforms and to start seeking a broader base of social support for his government, which is basically the thing that we're basically saying now. And this is shit that they should have thought about before they even came to power. Um, but he didn't take Brezhnev's advice, sadly, or he took it very loosely. But as mentioned, this is the first time. There's going to be hundreds of times after this that the Afghani government asks for military intervention within uh, Afghanistan. Um, so the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is always kind of a meme, but also not really. It, it depends. I'm going to get into the nuances of this now. Interestingly, uh, almost every time that the Afghani government would ask afterwards, the Soviets would refuse. Uh, and there are there's like paper trails of Soviet refusal. So the idea that, oh, the Soviets want to be just fucking jump into Afghanistan or they just want, oh, social imperialists want to take control of the blah, blah, blah. This is nonsense. They've said no time and time again. They're not like the fucking American warhawks who would just want to go into fucking, they just want to bomb, right? <laughs> it wasn't like this. 
Something to, to point out is that during these uprisings, like 1979, for example, and onwards, there were massive defections of the Afghani uh, army to these regional rebel groups all around um, uh, Afghanistan, which kind of betrays a, another failing of the party in that they didn't ideologically um, educate the military apparatus. Uh, and as a result, they were basically, you know, uh, doing it for a paycheck. And whenever it came to, you know, oh, actually, I can just go fight for my own regions like local militia, they would just fuck off and go do that. The Pakistani authorities at the time noticed this. Uh, and of course, so did the US. And then they started salivating. Um, so they began talking um Afghanistan, the Afghanistani, the, excuse me, the Pakistani and American governments, uh, and they were talking about thinking possibly we can arm these rebels, and then they were like, you know what, actually, let's let's uh, arm these rebels. Not only do we should we arm these rebels, but we should encourage further military action by these re rebels so we can force the Soviets to intervene. So there was an active effort by the U.S. and its local allies in the region to force uh, or to encourage Soviet intervention in the region. Now, in May 1979, the U.S. would commit almost like $700,000, uh, which I think in modern-day terms is like $10 million or some insane amount, but $700,000 to material support for the rebels through clandestine meetings with, in, in Pakistan. They called it, I believe, Operation Cyclone, so you can look that up for more details. Uh, JT, I just want you to... In 1979, it was $700,000. How much do you think it would increase uh, just shortly after? Just throw out a number if you can. How long after? Like, let's say a year after, two years after, something like that. How, how much do you think the, the American government, in the 70s, by the way, right, would, would, would contribute? Let's see. If it went from 700000 I don't know, $1.5 million? $630 million. Jesus year. Christ. What? $630 <laughs> million. <laughs> they, gave more, they, they gave more money to the Afghani rebels than, their, than the, almost how much they give to their own military. Good God. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'm not, I don't know, the American military gets in the billions, sorry, I forgot, you guys are fucking insane. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like yes, but Jenner, six hundred and thirty million dollars for a bunch of goat herd, goat herders with AKs. Can you fucking imagine? Wow. I love that. So uh, just so you know, again, some people are like, oh, the Soviets were the Soviets were defeated by people who didn't run out of fucking money or take. They were basically mm. the modern. They were like Ukraine. Back, the rebels were like Ukraine now. They just kept getting money and 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 weapons, <laughs> right? And, but at least there was there was more of an ideological push than than there is today. Anyways. Uh, so like I mentioned, yeah, $630 million uh, per year. Of course, none of those cents would go to the, you know, um, crumbling inner city schools within the United States or the fucking, the, the lead, the, the lead flavored water <laughs> <laughs> or, or healthcare or anything else, right? No, no, it had to go to, to giving stinger missiles to, to, to Afghani insurgents. Anyways, so with this massive cash injection, um, there was increased insurgent activity, as you may imagine, but also wasn't entirely just U.S. funded uh, or U.S. supported. These people had uh, risen up even before there was any U.S. money or any money at all um, to, to, that, that showed up. So there was an active grievance on the ground. Right, uh, the Afghani government should have sooner dealt with those grievances rather than just try to you know fight fire with fire. Now you'd think uh, if you're an intelligent government, once you see increased insurgent activity and once you see foreign funding, you try to you know attack it at its at its sources. You try to minimize this foreign funding. You try to like you know cut it at source. You try to incorporate these rebel groups. You try to see what the grievances are and sort them out. That's not what the party did and what the government did. The government looked at themselves and they're like, you know what? Actually, I think this is a prime time for uh, inter-party conflicts. So <laughs> what we're going to do now is we're going to start a massive repression of the Parchami members, the, the flag members, the smaller uh, faction within the Afghani government at the time and the party. 
Um, these people played no role in the disaster that was unfolding in the different parts of the country, but uh, it was a way of carrying out some ethnic grievances and to just kind of be like, oh, you know, we need a scapegoat, so you guys are the scapegoat. Uh, which, by the way, didn't re reflect well on the government and didn't reflect well with the people, uh, unsurprisingly. This happened, by the way, uh, in the, the short period, um, because as mentioned, uh, Taraki, he was doing this sort of stuff and then he was assassinated. And instead uh, of him came in Hafizullah uh, Amin. Uh, and during this time, he started this massive repression of other members of the party. Uh, and this the situation within the government was just dog shit. It was fucking getting worse day by day. And the Soviets were like, you know what? If this dude stays in another fucking week, <laughs> we're not going to have an Afghanistan anymore. <laughs> so, so they're like, you know what? We're going we're gonna to put in the fucking um, the modern warfare special mission uh, disc. <laughs> we're going <laughs> to fucking fly in, paratroop some people in, and get rid of him. Uh, so they intervened. They overthrew him. And... Uh, a few months later, basically, um, he died, of course, uh, in case that was uh, mistaken. Um, a few months later, uh, after like the thousandth time that the Afghani government requested the Soviet um, government to intervene uh, militarily in Afghanistan, the Soviets finally agreed, and they moved in some small groups of um, units, and then they gradually increased and increased. And the Afghanis, good for them, I mean, the Afghani government... Um, they kind of bamboozled the Soviets because they were like, you know what? We keep asking for them for massive, like, you know, uh, what's it called? Troop movements and whatnot. What we should start doing is asking for very small, like give us like 10 advisors. You know what? How about you give us just like a hundred soldiers that would just go with us. How about you give us blah, 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 and like gradually increase with material and personnel and whatnot. Uh, and that's what they did with the Soviets until the Soviets realized it's like, holy shit, we're actually all the way in the fucking, <laughs> in, the, in this conflict now. Uh, and hilariously, again, looking into the literature, not even nobody, not even the Soviet government knew exactly why they intervened. They've asked several people, and not not any, not one single person had a, a concrete answer as to what purpose they were going to intervene and why. There were several purposes, right? But there was no one, you know, official. Oh, we're going to uh, intervene. Not even like, oh, it's our socialist. Uh, what's it called? Um, the Brezhnev Doctrine. It's our socialist uh, ally, and we don't want them to fall, so we're going to go militarily intervene. Mm. Which is, again, very funny, because otherwise in Hungary and in Czechoslovakia and whatnot, the shit was a lot more clear. So what are the, the uh, what are the reasons? Because as mentioned before, they were explicitly against intervening. And hilariously, when you look into it also, when they were intervening, intervening, intervening uh, fuck me, intervening, <laughs> excuse me, um, they continued to be against it. Then they kept saying we are against intervention, but as they were in there, uh, basically indicating the, the lack of, of, of uh, enthusiasm, even within high government circles for being into, in this conflict. Mm. Several explanations. Number one is the idea that Iran, having currently its revolution and this religious fervor, and they want to export their, this particular brand of revolution, they believe that maybe they would be uh, affecting Afghanistan. Not only this, but they are afraid that that religious effect would also rub off on their Central Asian republics, which also had a large religious population. Another idea was that NATO was trying to expand locally into um, the region by trying to set up its own little like area of, of influence within Afghanistan, so maybe they have to be in there. Uh, another uh, meme is that Hafizullah uh, Amin, the guy who was stayed in for two months and then was killed, uh, his government was incredibly unstable, and he was so incompetent that some Soviet government members truly believed he was a CIA asset. They believed that this dude must have wow. been planted because he's so shit. <laughs> <laughs> and as a result, maybe possibly that could 
could have influenced their decision. Regardless, basically, no matter what the reason was, they went in and immediately there was plenty of international condemnation. There were sanctions placed um, on uh, the USSR. There were boycotts. Um, even the socialist bloc split over this. Uh, many countries across the socialist bloc, even Warsaw Pact countries, uh, thought, hey, you know, that's kind of fucked up that you did that. Many of them didn't say it publicly, but uh, they mentioned in, in like, you know, backroom meetings with, with other, with the leadership. It's like, yeah, you guys really fucked up. What are, what are you doing? Hmm. Anyways, so now we're in 1980. Keep in mind that the revolution happened really in 1978. So nothing, there was no point in which Afghanistan was allowed to develop as a socialist country. That's why I hesitate to even call it socialist. There was never any socialist development. There's barely industrialized. There was nothing. There was a government that called itself socialist, but didn't even have the time to think about establishing any form of coherent socialism because they were constantly fighting with their, with their environment, uh, which had a, a myriad of issues we're going to get into at the very end. So we're at 1980. The governments really only held uh, major urban centers, right? The vast majority of the country, which was rural, they had absolutely no power or influence over, which is uh, funny when, when you think about, but also uh, the, the parallel exists in many other um, socialist revolutions and with the Soviet revolution, with I mean, with the Russian revolution, with the Chinese, with the Vietnamese, etc. Et um, but the inverse, they usually would hold the countryside or one or two urban centers. But the point being is that the rebels held the vast majority of the countryside. If you look at the maps of this era, You'd you'd actually fucking laugh because it looks like it looks like um imagine if you were to put your fingers over like a map that's kind of like the government influence and all the other space between your fucking fingers is is uh, <laughs> rebel it's ridiculous like how little area they they, they managed to hold and wow. even that little area that they held they couldn't they could barely hold on to um now the rebels at this point they're rece receiving a lot of fucking money they're receiving a lot of military aid their principal uh, benefactors were the U S. Saudi Arabia, unsurprisingly, and China, which is fucking hilarious because they were like, oh, you know what? Oh, Soviet social imperials, blah, blah, blah. So here, we're going to give like $600 million worth of total uh, support to these Afghani rebels, which, by the way, if you think, if, if you know about the, like, you know, the, the intricacies of the movements there, there were also Maoist groups that were active within Afghanistan at the time. And even these people didn't get as much money as the fucking rebel. It's, it's a meme. It's a big fucking meme. Chinese foreign policy has always been dog shit. <laughs> and um, it, it wasn't any different back then. Uh, these rebels who now have basically co coalesced together in a loose uh, federation, we can say, and they're now called the Mujahideen. Mujahideen, this is an Arabic term, specifically means like those who struggle against or those who struggle. Um, it's not doesn't necessarily mean like oh religious war or some shit. Uh, I mean the word literally just means to to to, to struggle with something. Anyways, as mentioned, they weren't a single entity, but they were groups of various militias, and then they coalesced against the anti-Soviet sentiment, which also became a nationalist sentiment because oh these foreign Soviets, these foreign people are invading our land, blah blah all that kind of shit, which made the intervention even more unpopular than it already was. The war, the entire Soviet, uh, like, uh, Afghan debacle, uh, had one pattern, a very simple pattern. The Afghani army tries to do something and fails, fails horribly at whatever it was trying to do. Then it calls the Soviets to come in. The Soviets, being actually competent, they come in and they sort the issue out, right? But then afterwards, they got to leave. So they leave, and then the rebels basically go and return and take over the shit that the Soviets just cleared out, and nothing changes. And that's basically what happened for, like, eight years which is, <laughs> funnily enough, that's kind of what the Americans also did. So there was a, maybe there's a thing about this Graveyard of Empires <laughs> uh, meme. Uh, but yeah, uh, the Soviets basically played a way bigger role than they had hoped. Uh, and they also kept trying to reorganize the Afghani military, trying to make it a competent fighting force, but it never became a competent fighting force. 
Regardless, the Soviets were still a competent military force themselves. They had serious success, uh, but the government's incompetence, not even the military, specifically the Afghani government's incompetence uh, and lack of popularity rendered basically all the victories of the Soviets useless um, and made them be way more difficult to achieve. There's a very big deal made in the West about uh, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and all that nonsense, but they played very minute roles. In some cases, they even played uh, like a negative role for the Mujahideen, like they impeded their pro progress. So uh, we're not even going to get into it, but it's a big meme. The, these people barely played a role during mm. this, this, this era. So the Soviets, uh, they, they're in there for several years, and then finally they uh, uh, pull out in 1989. So, yeah, like a good almost decade that they were uh, in Afghanistan with basically no change, virtually no change in the situation. Only now, um, once the Soviets leave, in a weird like twist of fate or irony or whatever you want to call it, this, the abandoned Afghani government, who was very bitter, starts to actually win victories for themselves uh, towards the end, which is also kind of kind of a meme. Um, but... Uh, at the end of the day, it wasn't enough. Uh, we're going to get into exactly why. Uh, the Mujahideen themselves also, despite being, what's it called, in um, some loose federation, themselves were led by different warlords and were divided against ethnic lines or other such lines um, that coalesced in certain regions. So already they kind of crystallized into political and social forces in these regions that they controlled. Despite this kind of fractured movement, they managed to have fairly decently coordinated movements that still fought against the Afghani government. And even when the Afghani government finally started getting semi-competent and all this stuff, um, they managed to you know, push back uh, and keep you know, the, the momentum of that movement going, the Mujahideen. Uh, like insurgency going after um, in, in this in, interim period I didn't speak of Babrak or these other people because it doesn't matter but um, now we're at the final leader of revolutionary uh, Afghanistan which was Muhammad Najibullah uh, he's the only guy that had sense that ca came into power and he was also the only guy who was semi-competent um, semi-competent actually I understand he was fairly competent even the Soviets liked him uh, and his uh, plan was a good one. It was just done way too late. He, first of all, wanted reconcil uh, reconciliation with the... What's, how the fuck do you pronounce that word? Reconciliate... Reconciliation. Reconciliate. Reconci fuck, you said it. Yeah, exactly. People don't <laughs> want to try to say it. Uh, with the rebel groups, which is something that should have been tried 10 years ago. Uh, he wanted to put in, uh, institute some new reforms. He wanted to start uh, write up a new constitution with these people allowed to... Um, what's it called? Uh, uh, give their input on this constitution. Uh, he wanted to allow them to hold certain political positions. Uh, there's a lot of renaming. There's a lot of incorporation of other rebel elements, etc., etc. All the shit that should have been done like 10 years ago, right? Again, exactly what the Soviets and what the Pachan faction were talking about, which is a broader uh, coalition of anti-imperialist forces, etc. So this is what, you know, United Front, this would make more sense than what the fuck the, the, the act actually happened in Afghanistan. Regardless, all this happened too late. It fell apart very quickly. No meaningful change was brought. And in 1992, the Mujahideen, they took Kabul, and then they started a petty squabble over power between themselves, which finally concluded with the Taliban winning in 1996. And basically, the entire situation from 1979 until 1996 resulted in deaths of hundreds of thousands of people on the very conservative end, probably caused more than this, and displaced millions of people, upwards of 6 million people. And Afghanistan is not a very populous country. Uh, it also resulted in something that has been like very heavily studied now, which is the uh, militarization of Afghani society. So uh, all layers of, of um, Afghani society are now uh, inbuilt with these militia structures and all the traditional power centers and power figures from before, the intelligentsia, clerics, military officials, um, uh, civil servants, etc. All these people are basically receded from public life. Uh, for warlords and other types of militia leaders, uh, which kind of govern almost every aspect 
of Afghani life now, uh, which is interesting compared to prior to like the 60s and 50s, in which Afghani society was a lot more different. It was a lot more like traditional in the centers of power. So this civil war basically happens uh, on and off from 1992 until like 1996, where the Taliban gets most control of Afghanistan, but still not all. There's still ongoing insurgency, and uh, the uh, Americans decide to invade. Um, their official reason is Osama bin Laden. Apparently, oh, he did 9-11, so we need to get in there and get him. Oh, uh, <laughs> but in reality, it's the usual shit that you want. They wanted opium. They want access to resources. They want a geopolitical and geostrategic region close to China and uh, Russia. If you know that uh, Afghanistan border has a very small border with China, but it does border with China. Um, likewise, it's very close to uh, Russia, so it's a very important place. Um, if they could secure it and put in a friendly government and have some NATO bases there and whatnot. But uh, their official region, reason was Osama bin Laden. Anyways, they put in a puppet government, uh, which couldn't g- take hold of the Taliban insurgency. It continued. And this Taliban insurgency was from 2001 until the overthrow of the puppet government, which is very recently. I'm talking about like fucking May of 2021. In May of 2021, the Taliban carried out a new offensive, which basically took over most of the country. And then the U.S. basically uh, threw everybody on helicopters and flew off the, the roof of the fucking embassy, just like in, 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 in Saigon. Um, which, by the way, I fucking love it because there was like a month before uh, Biden said something to the effect of like, oh, we're not going to get out of there. We're not going to shamefully retreat like in Saigon or some bullshit, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is yeah, a big meme. Uh-huh. But anyways, so uh, in August of 2021, the Americans officially withdraw out of Afghanistan and the Taliban come to power again after like 20 years, come to power again in, a, in Afghanistan. No one, or basically nobody internationally recognizes this new government. The IMF stopped their payments. Other governments stopped payments. They stopped processing payments for the Afghani government. Uh, they slapped a million fucking sanctions on the country, which is already ravaged by civil war and other wars, ravaged by an American invasion and bombing, ravaged by many years of instability and lack of industrialization, etc., etc., etc. They decided to punish them even further, which led to a horrific famine, a worse economic de- decline than ever before. Basically, they're punishing a country and the vast majority of the people who more or less have no uh, say in what's going on with the political happenings uh, that are basically taking place around them which is kind of a the, the beauty beautiful irony or um, poetry let's say of uh, the western world in general which is hey you know what uh, we fucked up this country beyond uh, repair um, how about we slap more sanctions on them for <laughs> to reward them for, for the instability that we caused mm-hmm. but anyways so far the Afghani government is still unstable but it's become a lot more stable that the Taliban's power that doesn't make that doesn't mean that the Taliban is good. It just means that there is a lull in the fighting, which is if you've ever lived in a war zone, you'd very much appreciate. Um, mm. But as as mentioned before, they don't control the entire country, and there's still factions that fight, etc., etc., etc. Not to mention the warlord, basically, you know, a regional fracture that exists across the entire country. That's kind of the the, the end of our story here. Uh, but there's a bit of a few tid- tidbits that I could share with you, and then we can just kind of uh, finish this this meme. The uh, you know I'll start with the, the the you know the fucking proper information. And I'll start with the meme. Uh, the as mentioned before, Afghanistan is not a good example of a socialist country. Um, there are many reasons for their failure, but number one, um, they didn't actually prepare 
for uh, the socialist transition. The country arguably was not ready, and even if it wasn't ready, you could still make the effort, but the effort wasn't carried out appropriately. They were not centralized. They had some uh, massive uh, issues with industrialization, uh, basically no industrialization even prior to the revolution, but even afterwards as well. Uh, they were heavily influenced, uh, almost in a di direct control sense, by the USSR because of the incompetence of the Afghani government, which was viewed as basically a, um, a political interference from this foreign power, uh, which did not, you know, reflect well um, and wasn't supported by the Afghani people. Uh, they had basically no popular support. Uh, they had very difficult internal situations, and the international circumstances were even worse. Um, they pushed for way too much. Uh, they uh, not only way too much. They pushed for uh, too much and too much too fast. Um, the leadership was disjointed from itself and from the masses. The leadership itself was divided against ethnic and other such lines, which is fucking ridiculous. Um, society in general was very highly feudal, uh, and I would even argue to say it was the most feudal of all previous social experiments, um, which could have played a role in it uh, not succeeding. It's a very complex situation, but uh, the general TLDR of it is Afghanistan is a good example to learn from because of how bad it was. It's a it's a basically a, a playbook for all the things you're not supposed to do. Mm. Uh, so that's why I encourage mm -hmm. people to actually read into it. And I'm going to give some uh, reading recommendations in a second. But the last thing is, there's a lovely little side story that I just want to share with you guys. Uh, when the Pakistani government uh, and certain officials spoke with the U.S. and they're like, "Oh yeah, let's give them, let's give the rebels money and let's encourage them against the Soviets," um, they start getting bold and they start telling them, "Hey." Uh, the, the, the you, you rebels, we're giving all this money, we're giving all these guns, do you know what you should start doing? You should start doing border raids from Afghanistan into the USSR. Huh. Um, and they start doing it. And in some cases, they went even 16 kilometers deep into Soviet territory. They would do these like hit and run attacks and they'd come back in. The Soviets never actually did anything about this like when, when the rebels would go into USSR territory, but they basically sent like a telegram, <laughs> a, sing a single telegram, by the way, um, on like an afternoon uh, to the Pakistani central like government office. And they just said like, do it again, D do that again, and we're invading. And then from that <laughs> moment on, it never happened again. Say it again to my face. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love, I love. Пошел, пожалуйста. There's so many instances of the Soviet Union. Хорошо приехал. There's so many instances of the Soviet Union just basically saying, like, fuck around and find out, and they stop fucking around. I love it. But yeah, I'm gonna give you a few recommendations. As usual with most, like you know, West Asian, North African, or other Central Asian, there's never any good sources in English. So I'm gonna give you a few. That are well, what do you mean? Oh, the only so good sources are in English. If it's not written yeah, in English no, or by a exactly, by a yeah. John or a Billy, <laughs> I don't read that shit. Yeah, well, I ha I have two books for you. Okay, I have a book called, written by a Philip Bonofsky, and I have a book written to, uh, by oh, Beverly Mayo. Sounds Slavic, <laughs> okay. Jewish, and no like Okay, there's a Beverly Mayo. All right, this guy's name. Oh, Beverly. I love it, love yeah. it. There's but a but it's a female. Called... No. It's, it's okay. It's, it's acceptable. <laughs> exactly. All right, so it's a book called Revolutionary Afghanistan by Beverly Mail. Beverly like the hills and Mail like the gender. Mm. Um, and <laughs> it's also basically a uh, decent book that kind of goes into uh, how the... the Beverly the... like the hills of... Sorry, please. But yeah, um, it's written like in a weird narrative story, so I don't like it, but maybe some people will. And it goes into fairly deep into the, 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 the memes of the, of, of the history, basically. That's number one. There's another one that was published by International Publishers in New York. It's titled Washington's uh, Secret War Against Afghanistan by Philip Bonoski, B-O-N-O-S-K-Y. 
Uh, and this one kind of, it's, it's, it's a decent book also, but it kind of overdoes the, uh, overdoes, excuse me, overdoes the, um, the like American aspect of it. Yes, the Americans did support it, but there's also an indigenous movement here. It was way more complex um, than the, the, the way they make it out to be. But um, there's some good chapters here for sure. So uh, I do recommend it. Otherwise, in English, I'm going to record, I'm going to, um, what's it called, recommend two books. They're both garbage. But if you really <laughs> wanted to, you, you can like lean some information from. There's a book called Afghanistan, A Cultural and Political History by Thomas Barfield. It's uh, in their Princeton Studies uh, li- um, like uh, series. Uh, and it's kind of garbage. But it's enough to give you a decent history if you're interested in that. And then the other one is one called Ghost Wars, uh, which basically talks about uh, the CIA involvement in basically everything Afghanistan. Um but uh, it's equally garbage. So those are the two works I would recommend. One, the last bit, and then I'm done for today. I love that in the book that I just referenced, Afghanistan Cultural and Political History, uh, if you were to read the synopsis of it, the very end of it, it says, um, uh, oh, to discuss like what be, uh, the thousands of years of what became the graveyard empires for the British and the Soviets and what the United States must do to avoid a similar fate. This was published in 2012. So uh, big meme, big oof. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> there's there's so much more that could be said, but this is dragged on way way longer than it could be. I could have talked a lot more on the like more modern like past 20 25 years of Afghanistan, but it's very boring. It's just like civil war, civil war, the Americans come in, civil war, a bunch of people die, and then the Americans pull out. Um and then in between misery and famine and economic mm. inactivity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, questions for this uh lecture, my 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 little piggies. Uh so from the beginning, <laughs> the the first quote-unquote socialist revolution or coup would you call this basically just adventurism of a small sect of the intelligentsia yeah. i would say so because it was mostly military involved in a bunch of people who are highly urban westernized educated who were very disconnected from what the vast majority of uh, the people wanted or what they would have accepted it was just a bunch of people who were like this is how i believe it would be best to transform this country mm-hmm. right um so, so it it's like if you got a college so, poli sci yeah. class to to try to do a coup, got it? <laughs> kinda, kinda. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like oh, um, yeah, rather than being with the the, the masses and actually mm. creating a program together, they're like, you know what? I think this is what's good for you. Um, and yeah, that yeah. was there was the disconnect there. And not only this is good for you, but what you have been doing up until now is kind of cringe, and I don't like it. And I'm going to change the whole yeah. way you want mm-hmm. to live life in a matter of uh, two years, mm. and you better fucking deal with it. Oh, and I'm doing it in a country that uh, has like 700 fucking warlords and half of the people are armed and everybody mm-hmm. has it, an uncle or a grandpa that's been in like seven wars. Yeah, yeah, I am I am very smart and I will tell you what to do and you will not be able to do anything about it. Fucking just, just brain on top of brain on top of brain. Uh, of course, yeah. The, the meme, of course, is imperialism did play a huge fuck up, f- mm. f- f- fucking up role in Afghanistan and it continues to this day. So I don't want to discount that uh, yeah. aspect either. But just so people know, this was a rough history of Afghanistan. There's a lot more that can be said, particularly on the social analysis aspect of this. But now you have at least an idea. And if you really are want to go deeper, then you have the, the relevant books uh, that I uh, recommended, amongst other things that you can look into uh, as well. But yeah, be wary. Be wary of the propaganda out there, mm. but have fun. <laughs> I'm super excited about this uh, Hakim education series because we've done two episodes now. Uh, and we are well on our way to Hakim covering the entire world. Eventually, we will have a history episode <laughs> of every yeah, single country on Earth. 
Uh, Dude, every single American that. state, there's going to be <laughs> oh, a covering okay. of every state oh. of the United States. And then every state that. of Canada, do you know those? And then every part of Brazil or some shit. Okay, Brazil is actually cool. Why would, why would I want to do fucking... All right, who cares what's in... Winnetka is not a place in, in Canada? I have no idea. Winnetka. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. Am I two for two? Yeah! Oh, it's in <laughs> Illinois. Never mind. Fuck. <laughs> Winnetka is in Illinois. Why am I thinking... What, why is that coming? Oh, no. Winnetka is the, the, the place where um, the Home Alone house is. That's why it came oh. to my mind. All right. Wow. See? Oh, okay. Deep County. It's in, it's in Cook County. All right. Cool. <laughs> uh, here goes the rabbit hole. All right. End this episode before you go right, too deep. Right. Anyways. Okay. So uh, this has been a, a, a hopefully lovely episode that you guys enjoyed. Uh, please do let us know if, if you like this and you want more of these and give us a suggestion on which countries you want covered. I have a lot of fun making this sort of stuff. Uh, I love lecturing about this fucking bullshit. So just give me the word. All right. <laughs> of course, we can't do this with our, without our lovely patrons. So thank you to all you lovely people who support us on Patreon. Uh, of course, the link will be in the fucking description and the show notes and all that kind of stuff. So you can check that stuff out. Otherwise, this has been the program. I'm Hakim. I'm JT. And I'm Yugopnik, and I will not say anything funny because this was actually informative. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Disney! <laughs> <laughs>